My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with writer and patient advocate Alana Jacqueline about her chronic illness, primary immune deficiency disease, and her comorbidities, including a mysterious adhesion disorder. Alana grew up constantly sick. She always seemed to have some sort of infection or illness. And she never understood why until she was 19 years old when she was diagnosed with primary immune deficiency disease. There are many different forms of this type of disease, but for Alana, this meant that she was hypogammaglobulin anemic. In essence, she was missing a piece of her immune system, the piece that would help remember previous infections and help prevent future infections. Although she had found the answer, it was another 10 years before Alana would find proper treatment with IVIG, intravenous immunoglobulin. When Alana was 19 years old, it was also discovered that she has an adhesion disorder. And this is when scar tissue grows internally. The scar tissue, also called adhesions, can wrap around her organs and be quite painful and dangerous. The cause of these adhesions is unknown and the only available treatment is surgery to have them removed, but unfortunately, they often grow back. So Alana has a long history of chronic illness, chronic pain, and chronic gaslighting from the medical community and her own family. She discusses how there was a time where she felt like her mom was the only person on her side, and she felt so lucky to have her mom advocating for her continued care, Alana's experiences with chronic illness led her to start a blog. She wanted to explain to family and friends what she was going through, and this blog took off. It actually culminated in her being offered a book deal in 2018 and the publication of her best-selling self-help book, Surviving and Thriving with an Invisible Chronic Illness. She's an activist and a patient advocate working behind the scenes to try to help the next generation of people with chronic illness have an easier time than she did getting diagnosed and finding appropriate treatment. This podcast is full of not only information, you know, all sorts of really interesting information about diseases that I had never heard of before, but also some really great practical tips about trying to navigate the chronic illness world and trying to get yourself diagnosed. She's also an influencer and a speaker, so she is very adept at talking about chronic illness, and it absolutely shows in this episode. This was a super fun conversation that I'm so excited to share with you. I'm so grateful to Alana for her time, and we're going to jump into it in just a couple minutes. Alana actually inspired me during our conversation to look into genetic testing. This is something that I have been thinking about for a long, long time. I've had a couple of different genetic tests done looking for the answer for my mystery illness, uh, but I have been wanting to do a full genome sequencing for quite a while. It was actually something that one of my doctors recommended, but my geneticist you know, at the University of Washington basically said, we can't do it unless you want to pay $10,000. So I had been thinking about trying to find an outside company to do it. And Alana talked about it during this episode. And she gave me a little bit more information after the episode. I spoke to my doctor about it. She gave me some great information as well. And I am moving forward with getting genetic testing. I'm not only doing a full genetic panel, but I'm also doing a mitochondrial genetic testing. Um, I, I have a genetics counselor now through the company that I chose. And I'm really, really excited 
excited about it. You know, I, I'm really going after this diagnosis. I'm trying everything I can think of. And although this testing is expensive, it is way less than what I have to pay out of pocket to do this through the University of Washington. And I'm so grateful to my partner, Andy. This is a gift from Andy. I'm so, so lucky to have Andy in my life for a wide variety of reasons, but just also so lucky for the, the gifts that she gives to improve my health situation. And this is a huge one. So yeah, we'll see what happens with it. I'll give you a couple more quick updates about what's going on with my, my search for a diagnosis. So I've had a couple of abnormal test results. One of them is that my IgE allergy levels are very high, but I don't have, you know, constant allergy symptoms like runny eyes, itchy nose, you know, that sort of a thing. I think I said that backwards, but yeah, I'm not dealing with, you know, the typical allergy symptoms. Uh, so I'm being sent to an allergist. Don't know what this means yet. I've been trying some allergy medication, haven't really felt a difference from that. Uh, but, you know, I've been doing some reading and trying to find out if there's any sort of allergic condition that can cause neurological symptoms. My doctor is theorizing that maybe I have some sort of inflammatory response to allergy instead of your typical response. So yeah, so we're looking into it. I have an appointment with a specialist in allergy, but it's not until September. So we're going to sit back and wait for that one. Uh, I'm also finally scheduled for a tilt table test, but unfortunately that's not till August. So this is one of the huge frustrations with chronic illness is that once you start to make some progress, you then have to wait for the specialist and that can take months. I've also found out from doing my two-week heart monitor, I just found out that I have a periodic abnormal heart rhythm. I have no idea what that means yet, but I have a referral for a cardiologist. I'm really hopeful that that will not be months and months away, but I will keep you updated as I get more information. But there's still no clear diagnosis emerging uh, from what we've seen so far. You know, I, I have all these specialists I'm going to go see, and I'm really keeping my fingers crossed for this genetic testing. I feel like as much as I love my new doctor and I feel like I'm getting really good care all of a sudden, it's really feeling like the genetic testing might be the quickest and easiest way to get a diagnosis from everything that we've been looking at. You know, we've ruled out a ton, but we still haven't found it yet. But something that's really wonderful that's going on is my doctor is not giving up on me. She hasn't said anything about, you know, me making this up or this being in my head, or maybe there's nothing actually wrong. She hasn't said anything like that. And she's run almost 60 tests, you know, just so many tests. And I still have more at the lab that I need to go fill. Uh, she's really treating me like a puzzle that she wants to solve. And it's wildly different than anything I've experienced in the past. I feel very lucky to have found it. So I found myself in this heightened state of expectation recently, where I have this great doctor who's really trying to find a diagnosis, and I also have this genetic testing coming up that, you know, I, according to my genetics counselor, the whole point of doing this is to try to find a, a diagnosis, that that's what this process is for, uh, which is just mind-blowing to even talk to someone about, you know, someone who's not trying to deny that I have something wrong, but actually willing to figure out what it is. And to be doing that, approaching that from multiple different angles at the same time is amazing. It's never happened before. But I'm also finding that I'm just terrified. You know, I the whole process is is horrifying because on the one hand, what if I don't find a diagnosis from this genetic testing? You know, what if we look at my entire genome and it's perfect? And it's like, okay, there's no reason for you to be sick. That is horrifying. And then on the other side, it's like, what if the news is not good? You know, like what if the diagnosis, the answer is something that, um, that is very hard to live with? You know, it's really scary. So 
I'm really excited and I'm horrified and I'm finding that it's kind of uh, wearing on my emotions quite a bit. The whole process of really diving in and seeking a diagnosis with all of your heart and soul is so exhausting and, and scary and conflicting. And, you know, I just keep looking at all these test results coming in and just keeping my fingers crossed that something will be there, something concrete will be there. And to keep having all of these sort of non-concrete things show up, things that are slightly off that we haven't found before, it's a little maddening. Because even though I do have some fear uh, and, you know, all these feelings around this, my overriding desire is still, you know, to find a diagnosis, to finally have an answer for what's going in my body, to finally understand why I feel so sick so much of the time, um, you know, as scary as it might be to get that answer, that's still just what I want. We're going for it. <laughs> I'm really, I've really, I don't know. I've, I've never approached it this way before. I've learned so much from doing this podcast, from talking to all the people who've come on the show. And actually, it was, you know, several of the last conversations I've recorded that convinced me to finally take the plunge into getting genetic testing done. Both the conversation with Alana today, where she shares her expertise and experience, and also another interview I recorded that's going to come out in a few weeks with Ashley, who had genetic testing done, and that yielded a diagnosis. So I know that that's not always the case, um, and I have no idea if that'll be the case in my situation, but you know, from everything I've learned from doing this podcast, it really just felt like something I had to at least try. Fingers crossed, I'll keep you updated as the news hopefully rolls in. Before we move into our discussion with Alana today, I do have to thank our community of listeners who are supporting this podcast through Patreon. One of my dreams with this podcast is to create a full-time career for myself while I'm unable to work because of my chronic illness, and your support on Patreon is absolutely massive. So thank you so much to our Patreon producers, the five of you who are supporting this podcast at the highest tier available of $25 per month, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, Ensign Q, and Hipster Leia. Thank you as well to the rest of our listenership supporting the show on Patreon. There are currently three tiers of support, $2 per month, $7 per month, and $25 per month. There are different rewards and gifts for each level, but every single person who signs up on Patreon gains access to our monthly bonus episodes where I sit down with my partner, Andy. We talk a little bit about my updates with my health journey. We talk about her health journey as well, since she has been a guest on this show, and we talk about the TV we've been watching. So, you know... For this next month, I will absolutely be talking about the premiere episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, uh, because hot damn, I'm very excited about it. Uh, anyway, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast to learn more about signing up to support the show with monthly financial contributions through Patreon. And there's actually a ton of other ways you can support this show, both financial and otherwise. You know, sharing the show, word of mouth is all super helpful. You can learn about all the ways to support this podcast on our website, majorpainpodcast.com slash support. I'll remind you as always that I am not a medical professional, so please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting a doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our fascinating episode with Alana Jacqueline about primary immune deficiency disorder. Alana, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you. I've seen so many of your TikToks and it's exciting to be able to talk and have you respond. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. And I've seen a lot of yours too. So this is really exciting. I was really excited to get your comment and ask me to come on the show. I was like, yeah. Yeah, you're someone that I wanted to reach out to for a while. And I'm like, you know, I'm just going to do it. Let's just reach out and, and see if, if you're interested. And so we're here. We're doing it. I'm very excited. Um, yeah. So let's get to know you a little bit. Alana, why don't you tell us about yourself? Sure. So... I am an author, I'm a speaker, I'm a chronic illness patient advocate uh, and a rare disease patient advocate. And uh, I work in digital health. So I've had the pleasure of meeting so many other great patients, a lot of whom have been on your show. So that's that's really exciting. Um, and then I guess just a little more about me. I'm 32 years old. I currently live in Portland, Oregon with my husband. We just moved here from the East Coast. I've been uh, I was living there my whole life and just made the cross-country move. So definitely uh, a time of new beginnings for me. Awesome. How long have you been married? I've been married for six years, but my husband and I have been together since we were 17 years old. So wow. I, I want to say the math is like 16, 17 years, but that I don't do math wild. well. So. <laughs> I'm always so I just I just interviewed someone else who is uh, married to someone that they've been with since like 16 or 17 years old. Yeah. And that, it always just blows my mind because I'm just such a different person than I used to be. And I can't imagine, you know, changing that much with a partner and still having a functional relationship. Yeah, it's a really interesting experience, especially when you're chronically ill, because I mean, I've been sick my whole life, but certainly I was not as sick at 16 mm. as I was at 24, um, you know, and then at 32, it's just a whole different experience throughout your life. Uh, and so to have a, a partner go through all of that with you is it's super interesting, but it, I think it built a super strong relationship. Absolutely. That's amazing. I mean, you know, our relationships are really like the most important thing in our lives. If you don't have relationships, if you don't have people supporting you, everything is harder in my experience. Yeah, it, that's true. And it's, and it's definitely something that's been a common theme throughout my life is, is just trying to maintain relationships through chronic illness. And, um, and you know, it's a combination of finding the right people and having the right expectations of them. Yeah, totally. Well, I, this is definitely something we should talk more about. But let's let's dive into your story a little bit first. And you know, I I'm really excited to hear your story because I only know bits and pieces of it. Uh, I know you more for your advocacy and talking a little bit about what you've gone through. But I don't even know the full story or the full shape of what you've experienced. So, Alana, what is your major pain? Oh, here we go. Okay, so let's see. My story is that. I was born with a rare disease, but I wasn't diagnosed until I was 19 years old. And that's pretty interesting because if I had been born in a different location, maybe a year earlier or a year later, I might have been diagnosed uh, because everyone takes that newborn screening panel. But in 1990 in Florida, my disease was not on the newborn screening panel. So I slipped through the cracks. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so when I was 19 years old, I was diagnosed with primary immune deficiency disease. And, uh, and 
immediately after I was diagnosed, my mother was diagnosed with combined variable immune deficiency disease. My testing spurred her to get tested. Um, and so now we, we do see that it runs in my family, uh, but we definitely just didn't know what to call it or what this was the entire time that I was growing up, even though it was looking back, it was really obvious, but um, it's just not, it's a rare disease. It's not common. So nobody thinks to test for it. And Certainly when you have all of these different weird maladies, you don't connect at all. Um, and just to give a background on what primary immune deficiency disease is, because it is a rare disease, who knows, right? Okay. We all saw the boy in the bubble movie with Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> yeah. It's that, but not as, not as serious. That's like severe combined immune deficiency, which is another kind of immune deficiency. But I have something called hypogammaglobulin anemia. Uh, which is a primary one. And it means that I'm missing a component of my immune system, not the whole thing, just a piece of it, but it's a pretty important piece. And the way that it impacts me is it means that I can't fight off bacteria. I can't fight off viruses, diseases, um, regular common colds become totally snowballed out of proportion. And uh, I just have a really hard time recovering from illness and a really easy time catching it. And not knowing that growing up for 19 years obviously created a lot of problems. And I was seen by a lot of doctors and it, it kind of became this piece of my personality that, oh, I'm the sick kid, like, you know, from like the peanuts, the kid that's always sneezing. <laughs> like, that's kind of what I felt like. Like, it just felt like, okay, well, that's, you know, people kept telling my mom, oh, your child is just sickly. Like, that's just the way she is, which is, which is not a thing. It's, it's not a thing. There's a scientific term for that. And it's hypogammaglobulin anemia. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I have primary immune deficiency disease. I also have a couple of comorbidities that go with that. Uh, so I have um, dysautonomia, which I know a lot of other patients now who have that. So I have the full partial orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. I have gastroparesis, all the fun things that go with having POTS and dysautonomia. And then I also have an adhesion disorder, which is the piece of my disease that we can't quite figure out. that we haven't quite uh, been able to understand why it happens, but basically I grow scar tissue internally and, uh, and I grow scar tissue as keloid scars. And sometimes they're created because I have a surgery and there's a, a surgical incision, but other times they just appear. Hmm. And so I've, uh, so when I was 19 years old, the same year that I was diagnosed with the immune deficiency, I went to my gynecologist and I had been complaining of abdominal pain pretty much my whole life. But now that I was 19 and not a child anymore, I demanded basically that he look for endometriosis because hmm. Most of the women in my family have endometriosis. So I figured I probably have it too. And it's probably pretty bad if it's causing me this much pain. So he went in and did an exploratory surgery and expecting to find endometriosis. But instead he found abdominal adhesions. And these adhesions were very severe. They were just scar tissue wrapped around my intestines, my colon, um, pretty much all my abdominal organs wow. just wrapped into like a ball of scar tissue. And I had never had surgery before. I had never had any known infections before, like inside that, like my abdominal area um, that could have caused that. So they were really just spontaneous adhesions. 
And to this day, we don't know what caused them and they keep growing back. Uh, even though we, we keep removing them with surgery, which is common with adhesions. Um, but they are growing into other places in my body. They've grown in my eyeballs. They've grown in my nose. Um, so I've gone through a lot of testing to try and figure out what is causing this. Yeah. And we just, we don't know. That must be infuriating. Uh, you just introduced me to so many things I've never heard of before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. What, I, I have to ask, what, what does it feel like when an adhesion grows in your eyeball? It felt like I had something in my eye for a while. It felt like I had a piece of sand in my eye or something. Mm. And every day it got a little bit worse. And I finally went to the eye doctor and he's like, I, I don't know. I don't know what's happening here, but huh. you have like, he said, he said, it looks like you have skin growing into your eye. And, um, and we realized this was kind of like something similar that had happened with other parts of my body. Um, and so he went in and he, removed it during a surgery and sent it to a lab to see if it was like cancer or if it was, you know, the tissue was infected and it was just scar tissue. It just scar tissue. That's it. Wow. So you have this primary uh, immune deficiency that is sort of your, your main diagnosis. Yes. And then uh, I, this is a disease, a disease I've never heard of before. Do we know anything about what causes this? Is, is, a, is it a... Sorry, my mouth is uh, stumbling a little today. Today's not my best health day, but <laughs> we're going to do this. We're going to make it. Um, do they have any idea what causes this? Is it a genetic defect of some kind? It can be. So in my case, we do believe that it's genetic just because my mom has it. Sure. And we suspect that other women in my family have also had it uh, in the past. Um, but there are, there are a lot of, there are a lot, actually a lot of different types of immune deficiencies. You can develop hypogammaglobulin anemia after you've had cancer, after you've had long-term illnesses. Uh, it's something that I, I really am passionate about telling people that they should be tested for, especially mm. if they've been chronically ill for a long time, because that wears on your immune system. So there are people who are born with it, but there are people who develop it over time too. How do you get tested for that? So it's actually really simple, um, which is shocking because to think that I went so long without being tested is wild to me. But basically it's a blood test. Uh, you would go, you would get your blood drawn. They'll look at your IgG markers. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of markers in your immune system. There's IgM, IgA, IgG, IgE, I think. And they are all play an important role in your immune system. And so you'll do a blood test for... Uh, to see where your levels of IgG are. Ideally, you want them to be over 800. And you're going to get tested for that, see where your IgG level is. And then you might also start to get vaccines because that's one of the other ways that they test for it. So if you were to get the COVID vaccine, for example, you, your body might not be able to retain that hmm. if your immune system does not have enough IgG, which is really interesting because during the time that COVID hit, I really wanted to get my vaccine. Obviously, I was very scared of getting COVID, but I didn't have enough immunoglobulins to hold on to the vaccine, to hold on to those antibodies. Wow. So I had to do um, treatment for several months before I could even get the COVID vaccine. Uh, what, what does that treatment involve? So the treatment, there's, there's a couple of different ways to treat 
uh, primary immune deficiency disease, the most effective, in my opinion, is with uh, plasma infusions. So you can get what is called IVIG, which is intravenous immunoglobulin therapy. And that is going to the hospital or an infusion center and getting actual human plasma that is filled with the antibodies that you're missing. Uh, and that process can take several hours. It's a little arduous. Um, a lot of patients have reactions to it. I had it as my first line treatment as soon as I was diagnosed. But there is another treatment called subcutaneous immunoglobulins, which is what I'm currently on. And it's the same medication. It's human plasma, but it's delivered in a small, um, well, not small, it's actually enormous, an enormous syringe. <laughs> and you deliver it subcutaneously through four needles into either your stomach or your thighs. And I do that every week. And have and you been doing that every week since you were 19? No. So this is the interesting thing. So when I was 19, I was, I was so grateful to be diagnosed. Like I was just, I knew something had been wrong for so long. And I finally had a doctor who was willing to like diagnose me and, you know, figure it out, but he didn't know anything about treating immune deficiencies. And in the area that I was in, in South Florida, there also wasn't a lot of great doctors there that really understood immune deficiencies. So I kind of bounced around from immunologist to immunologist. I did two sessions of IVIG, and then I had a bad reaction to them as most people do, because a lot of doctors don't prescribe the pretreatment that you need, which is fluids and Benadryl and Tylenol. And there's a lot of things that go into it, but I didn't have a doctor who really understood it. So I had a, um, I had meningitis after the first treatment, which is pretty common. If you don't pre-treat it and don't know mm. what you're doing <laughs> and don't give the right dosage. I didn't know that. My doctor didn't know that. We, we all got scared and we stopped the treatment and we decided to treat the disease with prophylactic antibiotics. So that was just taking really strong antibiotics every day. Mm. And that was awful. I mean, being on antibiotics every day when you are literally constantly in fighting infections just leaves you really worn out and like drained and your stomach is all messed up. You get all the you know great side effects of antibiotics. Uh, and then also you become immune to the antibiotics. So <laughs> not a great path. So it wasn't until I was actually like 30, almost 31 that I found an immunologist that actually understood immune deficiency and started prescribing me the subcutaneous IVIG at the right dosage. And that's actually when I started to feel a lot better, but it really took me like 10 years, a little over 10 years to get from diagnosis to correct treatment. Wow. So, and you said you're 32 now, so you just have only been like a year where you're feeling a little better. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just starting to wake up from like a 10 year coma of feeling awful. And uh, it's it's been a trip. Yeah. Tell me about that. That's my... That's my goal. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I really, I look back on my twenties with a little bit of sadness Yeah, because I, I feel like, you know, I did my best. I feel like my doctors did their best, but when it comes to treating rare diseases and chronic illnesses and just weird things, we have so much left to learn mm -hmm. and our doctors have so much left to learn. And I didn't get the normal, you know, 20s experience that most people got. I didn't have a lot of energy. I didn't have a lot of protection from, you know, I think the way that we all just lived through COVID 
where we were really isolated and everything kind of had to be strategized around not being around other people. That's how my entire 20s was. And then I went into quarantine with everyone else in my 30s. So it was really, <laughs> it really just folded nicely in. Um, I was totally uh, quarantining before quarantining was cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of doing the same, not uh, for totally different reasons, just because, like, you know, I flared up about uh, almost five and a half years ago and just wasn't physically capable of being a part of the world for a long time. So mm -hmm. I was just home all the time. Uh, living that COVID lifestyle before it was yep. even a thing. And then when everyone else started doing that and started like, you know, complaining about, you know, how do I find purpose and meaning? I was like, yeah, I went through this. It took yes. me years to figure this out, you know, to find to find purpose and meaning inside of not being able to really, you know, go out that much or figuring out ways to go out when you can't go out that much, you know. Um, yeah, it's been so interesting to see the rest of the world go through that for a period of time. And now that the world is kind of reopening, it sounds like you're in this position where you can maybe par partake in that a little bit. Yeah, it's actually a really exciting and interesting time right now because you're right. Like I'm finally on medication. I'm on the right treatment. My levels, my levels used to be just for reference. I'd never gotten my levels above 200 in my life. Um, and now they're, uh, just a little over 800, which is at threshold of normalcy. Wow. So technically now I, I mean, I've gotten my code vaccine, my booster, um, I can go out and, and be around people really for the first time and not really have to worry so much. I still shouldn't be doing things like going into big crowds or, you know, traveling in airplanes where it's, you know, tight and, and I'm around a lot of potentially sick people who aren't really wearing their masks. Um, there's still precautions that I have to take, but I can participate in society a lot better than I could throughout my 20s, which is yeah. really exciting to me. And the timing is amazing because you can just pretend that you've just, you know, been out of society for COVID and you're coming back in like everyone else. You're like, yeah, that was wild, huh? <laughs> just Not like just that, but I also moved in. I also moved across the country, so I have an excuse as to why I have no friends. So it's not even weird unless you listen to this podcast and know that I didn't really have any before. So yeah. <laughs> wow. What was your what was your young childhood like until you were diagnosed? It sounds like you were sick all the time. And yes. you if you it sounds like you kind of have like a forgetful immune system. Like your immune system forgets how to deal with things unless you get this um IgG number up and then it can hold on to information a little bit better. Um, that's but, exactly, exactly how it works. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. So as a child, you not only have a forgetful immune system, but you don't know that. So you must right. have just been sick constantly. H how did that manifest? Yeah, I was definitely sick constantly. And my poor mom, she, <laughs> she, really, um, she really dealt with a lot with me. I mean, I was, I constantly had infections as a kid and she would bring me to the doctor and they would, give me antibiotics and then they would send me home and I'd come back sick again and she'd bring me back. And, you know, a lot of mothers deal with this situation where they're being told they're either, you know, they're Munchausen's or they have facetious disorder and, you know, basically blaming the parents for the children being sick. But mm. in, in my reality, I really was sick. Um, and then, I mean, things, it seemed almost normal to me that, you should always feel run down. You should always feel tired and sick. You should always have a stomach ache. That that just kind of seemed like that was that's what everybody felt like <laughs> all the time. Yeah. 
So I thought that was normal for a long time. And then when I was seven years old, I came home from school one day. I remember it was winter break. I laid down in the back of my parents' car and I fell asleep and I woke up like a day and a half later um, on the couch. I had just, I was very sick. I I was having trouble breathing. Um, My mom took me to the emergency room and the doctors were like, oh, she just has the flu. You know, she'll be fine. And my mom was like, I am not leaving this hospital until you do a chest x-ray, until you test her for all the things. Um, and you know, the doctors fought with her. They were really like, she's fine, don't be so crazy. And she's like, if she's fine, do a chest x-ray and prove it. Mm-hmm. So they did, and my lungs had collapsed. Um, I had really bad pneumonia. Um, and I was in and out of the hospital for the next year. Um, hospitalized for like weeks at a time, just trying to get my lung function back up because it was a, it was a really, it was kind of like my first really, really bad health crisis. And the first time I'd ever been hospitalized, which would later become a very recurrent theme in my life. But it was scary at the time, just adapting to that way of life and being in the hospital and having an IV in my arm and, you know, knowing that my mother couldn't be with me every second of every day to advocate for me. Um, and as I got older, you know, I had other health issues and the damage to my lungs from that stuck around for quite a while. So I had bad childhood asthma and I had really bad sinus issues. The sinus issues were crazy when I was a teenager. Um, and, uh, and so I was hospitalized a lot throughout middle school, high school, and that, that became kind of, normal again to me. And I, I kind of just figured, well, I'm just unlucky. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I got to high school, I had mono for like a year. Wow. And it was like terrible mono. Like I could not get out of bed. I had to go on hospital homebound. Um, so I was doing like a homeschooling program. I missed like a year of school and, um, I don't know, by the grace of God, I graduated like my senior year, but I graduated sick. I remember sitting at my graduation ceremony and just feeling like, thank God I can, I can go to sleep. Like I'm done with high school. Like I can go to sleep, Mm. like, which is not the mindset that you should have when you're graduating high school. (laughs) Like you shouldn't be so worn down by your life that you're like, I can go take a nap now. Yeah. Um, But that's really what my childhood felt like. It felt like I had been running exhausted. Um, like, like nobody really understood what was happening. I didn't really understand what was happening. Um, but I went to community college and I was like, cause I really couldn't leave. I couldn't leave home. I had bronchitis so bad <laughs> my first year of college that, um, I, I had to sleep on the first floor of our house. Like I couldn't climb stairs. <laughs> so, um, but I was like, you know what? I'm in community college. It's not that hard right now. I'm going to take this year and spend this year figuring out what is wrong because I cannot possibly live my adult life this sick, not knowing what's wrong with me. Hmm. Uh, And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, that's what I ended up doing. And I did get my diagnosis, but, um, but it certainly, it came at a cost of just not having the experiences that a normal 18, 19 year old would have had at that time. Yeah. And you know, when you mentioned, you know, your mom, fighting the doctors to get care for you. It's so amazing that you had an advocate because a lot of people don't. And 
when you go in and on top of that, like when you go in and you have these diagnoses like bronchitis or mono, it's always just like, oh, it's just bronchitis or mono and you will just recover. But in your situation, it's like these things just keep happening and you don't just recover. You get sicker and sicker and you stay sick for such long periods of time. And it feels like it should have been obvious that someone should look a little deeper, but no one is willing to. Uh, it wouldn't even occur to, mo to most doctors to even attempt to look deeper. Uh, and I just know that that's just how the system works, you know, and if you don't have an advocate fighting for you, oftentimes, you know, these things just go unseen and undiscovered. I, I think that I would have died, yeah. honestly, without my mom advocating for me as a teenager. And she, you know, she had it rough because she was the only one who was on my side. Wow. My father was not, did not believe me. My sister at the time She's a year older than me, so she didn't really understand the situation. Um, she, she and I have a great relationship now, and she understands, and she's a wonderful caregiver. Um, but like a lot of my relatives thought that I was attention-seeking, and really, they put that on me, but they put that on my mother, too, hmm. and really isolated both of us and made it so that we didn't really have the kind of support that we really could have used at that time. Um, but my mom was really strong, and she, she really was the one who empowered me and taught me, you know, not, they're not God, the doctors, they're yeah. not gods. They are men. They are women. They are people who have gone to school, learned what they've learned. And maybe they haven't learned what you are yet, but it's not your fault that this is, <laughs> this is where we are. Yeah. Well, it's so unfair. I mean, on top of being chronically sick, you are then isolated for being sick and judged for and, and assume that you are an attention seeker or a drug seeker or or whatever it is that people assume about chronically ill individuals when in fact they are just really sick and asking for help and constantly being denied. I've experienced it. It's you know, we've all experienced it. Um and I I still it's it's really hard for me to wrap my brain around it. When I think about it too much, I get really angry. Yeah. But on the on the flip side of that, there there are good doctors and finding the right doctor can be so life-saving. Finally getting a diagnosis can be so life-affirming. Um, you know, tell, tell me about that feeling of finally having a, a diagnosis at 19, understanding your whole life in a new context through, you know, a new lens of understanding of like, wow, this one thing has been causing all of these other little things this whole time. I think what I, when I think back on the day that I was diagnosed, we had been waiting. We had gone to that appointment. My, my mother and my stepfather had taken me to this infectious disease doctor. And when I say they had taken me, I mean one arm around each of their shoulders <laughs> to carry me into this office because I was so, so sick and so worn down. Yeah. And, and I was also depressed. I was like, no one's going to figure out what's wrong with me. I don't know. You know, I've been to all these specialists. Nobody knows, you know, maybe I am attention seeking. Maybe I am crazy. Ugh, yeah. And yeah. I had just gotten to that point where I had been so wrapped up in my head and I had no energy. And I really just, I, I thought I was going to die. Um, and so when we went to this doctor, he was like, you know, I think I know what's wrong with you. And I kind of looked at my mom and I looked at my stepdad and I was like, okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like I just, I didn't believe him. I didn't believe that he was going to do any tests. I just didn't believe anything anymore. And he took some blood in the office and they told me to go home and rest. Like I was going to do anything else. And he called 
And he's, he was, uh, he was, I was on the phone with him and my mom and he said, I know exactly what you have. He's like, and he explained, he's like, you have this immune deficiency disease. He's like, your levels are so low. He's like, you need to stop what you're doing right now. You need to go. I've set up an infusion for you at a hospital. Like you need to get to this hospital, get an infusion right now. And I looked at my mom and the two of us just wept. Like we just cried. We were so relieved. Like we could not believe that like the moment had come. Like it really, it's strange, but it is something that I think everybody with an undiagnosed mystery illness thinks about that moment when you actually get to hear like, you're not crazy. Like this is real. This is, this has been happening. Like we know just, we just got to, you know, the scientific explanation. And I think immediately that brought such a change to my personality um, and to foundationally who I am. Um, <laughs> and, and I think not always for the better, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it really made me strong and empowered and, and feeling like, wow, like I, I stood up for me. My mom stood up for me and we got there. Um, and it felt like, you know, that was great, but also I kind of wanted to go to every doctor who had told me that I was crazy or that I was, and I wanted to beat down their doors. I wanted to take those test results and shove them down their throats. Like I was angry. Yeah. Um, and I think when you watch like my TikToks and a lot of people have said this to me, like in the comment section, like, boy, you hate doctors. And I'm like, I don't hate doctors. I hate uneducated doctors. I hate doctors who go in and tell you because they do not know you something, you are crazy and that's not okay. It's not okay to tell patients that it's not okay to tell patients that without doing the right testing. And until you've, and, and to think that you have done all the testing is just inaccurate. Like I, I meet patients every day in what I do for a living and hear their stories and know that they have not gotten the proper resources that they need, that they should have been offered. And just like me, they're going to have to go through the same emotional damage um, and the same, you know, experiences and they can be avoided and they should be avoided. And if I have to spend my entire career and the rest of my life, making sure that this doesn't happen to other people, then happily, that's what I'm going to do. Totally. You're speaking my language, you know, like I, <laughs> I relate to this so much and I, I really relate to this idea of like doctors telling you over and over all the reasons why it's your fault. You know, it's yes. like you are just this or just that, or you're too sensitive or, um, you know, you're too stressed. And then you start to get depressed because this thing is happening. And then they say, oh, it's because you're depressed. And it's like, I wasn't depressed until you made me depressed. And <laughs> yeah. now you're using that as another excuse, excuse to deny me care. Like yeah. it's, it's such a horrible cycle. Um, you know, I, I like, it's just, it's so common. It's completely permeated our entire society. This idea that, you know, you go into the, the doctor's office and you complain of something and they will do whatever they can to convince you that it's nothing and that you are wasting their time. It's, it's bizarre. And I, I, I'm trying so hard to understand it, you know, from their point of view. I know that there are people that are drug seekers. There are people that do go into the hospital and waste doctor's time. But mm -hmm. I also, I feel like the number of people that do that is probably way, way lower than what is reported. Uh, because I think a lot of those people probably have legitimate complaints and are brushed off by doctors. Um, 
you know, I, I, I've started to believe everyone, <laughs> you know, at face yeah. value when anyone tells me, you know, like I have a major pain and this is what it is. I believe them. Uh, yeah. because like when I hear that, I feel like this is because a doctor has not taken care of this person, you know, like, like this hole exists because this doctor has not tried to fill it and has tried to convince this person that it isn't worth filling. And it just absolutely drives me insane. Like I, I, I get really mad sometimes about it as well. I, I think about, you know, I fantasize about getting a diagnosis so I can send an, a letter to all my previous doctors and this one naturopath and tell them all the ways they were wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I really, I kind of felt like, like I said, like, that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't do that. Um, and it's funny because I really, I actually thought that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to just show them all. And then I was just, I don't know, parts of me were like furiously angry and parts of me were like, well, they're just dumb. <laughs> can't help dumb. Like that's like it. And, and it's, you know, I want to educate, but I want to educate doctors that want to learn and I want to exile doctors that don't. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've certainly gotten to a point both in, you know, in my career and in my personal medical journey, where if I walk into a room and the doctor immediately is red flags for gaslighting and for, you know, just not taking me seriously, like I'm out, like I'm not mm -hmm. wasting my time with you. Like that's, you're not it. I don't need to be there. Absolutely. Like that's, yeah, I like totally I don't agree. devote any energy to that anymore. And but I understand. I absolutely understand patients who a they feel like, well, I think we get to the mentality of we start we start at general practitioners, right, or even pediatricians. That's where the journey begins. That's where we give our initial complaints, and then they send you to one specialist, another specialist, another specialist, and you kind of get to the point where you get to that final specialist, and you're like, oh my god. If this one doctor doesn't tell me what's wrong with me, then nobody can tell me what's wrong with me. And what we don't realize is that all those specialists that we've seen are just one specialist in a field of thousands, yeah. you know, even just in your state. Um, and one of them graduated the very last in his class of med school. Like that's the worst doctor of their class. And that might be the doctor that you saw. Um, so I think... I think it's just really difficult to, to figure out where to place your ire, like to figure out where do I even go with this anger? Where do I go with this confusion? Where do I go to educate? And I'm trying to, as part of what I do for a living with advocacy, um, I'm trying to give pathways on where to exert the energy if you're going to advocate, because there are so many voids that we scream into mm. that do nothing. And do nothing but waste our energy and and make other people feel like we're crazy, we're drug seeking, we're attention seeking. And it's like, well, you know what? I am attention seeking. I am seeking your attention to tell you about a very serious problem within the medical field, and we have to do something about it. But if I don't do it in the right way to the right audience, it's just a waste of everybody's time. And I'm not into wasting time. I've had enough of my time wasted in my life so far. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is something I think about a lot. You know, I, I feel like that I love, I love, I just talk to patients, you know, I just talk to fellow chronically ill individuals on this show. And something that I'm saying all the time is like, keep trying different doctors, keep fighting for yourself. I think that we all get so worn down by the gaslighting. And then when you start to believe it, you know, a doctor tells you over and over, that what you're experiencing isn't real. 
That is yeah. gaslighting, you know? Yeah. That is the definition of gaslighting is someone tries to convince you that something that is real is in fact not real to change right. your behavior in some way. And with the doctors, it's to get you to stop bothering them. Right. Um, so, so you do, you stop going to the doctors and then you start to think, wow, I guess I am causing this to myself. And then you start to try all these other things, you know, like alternative forms of care. Um, you know, you, you spend thousands of dollars going down different pathways uh, or you just suffer because you're out of options. Um, when in fact you can just keep trying different doctors. I love what you say about, you know, if, if, if this doctor is not someone who can be educated, then I, they're exiled, you know? And I, I do that as well. Like I'll go see a doctor for the first time. And if it's obvious to me that they are not taking me seriously, I never go back. You know, I just, I just try to get a different appointment with someone else. There is no point in trying to get a doctor who doesn't believe you to believe you. There is no point. You know? It's a waste. Of, it's a waste of time. And there was a lot of times, especially early on after my diagnosis, when I had developed dysautonomia and all the comorbidities, and when I had been diagnosed with these things, but like nobody knew how to treat them. Um, where I was running from doctor to doctor, and I was like, "Well, I have the diagnosis right here. Like now, what do we do?" And it's like, "Well, I don't know how to treat that, so maybe you don't have it." <laughs> yeah. Which was just so wild to me that like I could be like, "No, no, it's a it's a blood." it's a blood test. Like yeah. you can see it right here. Like this is my blood test. And they would be like, I don't think that means anything. Yeah, and totally. we'd be like, what dude, like there is full blown organizations devoted <laughs> to this disease. Like there is, you know, awareness campaigns. Like you can't deny this is happening, but they, they do. And they will. It's really incredible. Really incredible. Yeah. And it's so true. And I'll take the same results to different doctors and one will be like, oh my God, this is like a smoking gun. This is the thing that you have to do something about. And the other doctor will be like, uh, I don't think this is anything at all. And right. it's really, really, really tough to figure out what to pursue and which things to go get a second opinion about because you're going to need second opinions on everything. <laughs> it's just like with a complex illness, there's so many tests and all this stuff, or there's so few tests that it's just yeah. really confusing. It's like, why haven't we run more tests? And, and I, it's, it's expensive too. Yeah. And that's a problem that a lot of patients run into is that, you know, even when I think about, and I'm fortunate, I've always been very, very privileged. And I will say that like openly, I've been a privileged woman who, you know, despite being born with a rare disease and not being diagnosed until I was 19, I had good insurance my whole life. And so I had access to care that a lot of people would never have had. Um, and when I was in my twenties, um, I, after I, you know, went through college and I was working and I was able to work remotely from my bed, from the hospital rooms, but I was working. And so I had money to continue paying those copays to go to specialist after specialist after specialist and mm -hmm. leave the room when it didn't suit me. But a lot of people do not have that. Yeah. Um, and I, I honestly, like I took out credit cards and I went and got memberships for concierge doctors. You know, I did crazy things to try and get doctors to treat me well. Um, and, I, and I did it for my physical health, but I also did it for my mental health. Like I was like, I will spend anything that I need to spend to be treated like a human being at this point in my life. Um, and it's still something I do to this day. Like if I need to, like I will, I'll spend what I need to spend. I will go as far as I need to go to get someone to treat me with just a little bit of like respect or empathy or understanding, compassion, um, because that it made such a 
a hole in my self-esteem and self-worth. Yeah. Um, and I know that it's not, it doesn't make any sense. Like it, it shouldn't continue to affect me, but I think, you know, something I've realized even as I've gotten older and I've become more familiar with my disease and I've become a better advocate for myself is that I kind of will always feel a little bit scared to see a new doctor. I will always feel a little bit like this, this apprehension. Um, even the other day I was going for an appointment with, a. um, I'm, I'm, uh, trying to get pregnant. And so I went to go see a maternal fetal medicine specialist and I was sitting in my car and I was having such a panic attack. I'd had, I had been having a panic attack from the night before to the point to, to when I was in the parking lot waiting to go into this appointment, because I just felt like if they gaslight me, I'm going to fall to pieces like in that room. And I was just in a place where I was like, no, I have so much hope in my heart about this. Like, I don't want to go in there and just be told like, no, like that's impossible. Your health is too bad. Or, you know, just whatever I was going to be told, like emotionally, I was like not ready for it. Um, but I, I had that same experience with like going to neurologists, even after I've been diagnosed with things, going to new immunologists, like when I have all this blood work and paperwork, like straight up saying like, this is what you have. It is undeniable what you have. I still have that, you know, remaining medical PTSD Mm -hmm. that I'm trying to work through. I've been working through in therapy, but that's still with me. And I'm, I'm hoping at some point, you know, it resolves, but I think when you go through a lifetime of this, like it leaves scars well beyond what's on the skin. Absolutely. Yeah. And also like when you start gaslighting yourself which i have done as well Mm -hmm. you know like becoming hyper aware of everything that i'm doing trying to figure out what it is i've done that has caused this because all my doctors are telling me that i caused this right uh it's that's really hard to start to unwind you know and like i i'm i'm having really good care right now i really like my doctors my my medical center all of it is just so good right now um and you know some of it is bad but for the most part, it is really good. It's the best I've ever had. And doctors are not disbelieving me anymore, but I'm still gaslighting myself. You know, I still, all of these thoughts that are not even like conscious, I'll still find myself thinking on a good day, you know, it's like, yeah, you're fine. Why do you even have a wheelchair? Your legs work fine. And then like three hours later, I can't walk for, for some reason and I need the wheelchair. It's like, oh, thank God I have this. See, you need this. And yeah. that warring battle is going on inside of me all the time. And it's exhausting. Like, I, that's not fair. I shouldn't have to be fighting that internal battle. You know, and it took, it took years of doctors telling me that I was making it up for me to start questioning myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it took years, like years of being beaten down by doctors until I started beating myself down. And I'm sure that it will take years to unravel that if it's even possible, but that's not fair. You know, yeah. like it, why, why are we treating people this way? It's disgusting. We shouldn't be. And that's, that's where, you know, for me, my, my career comes into play and I feel like I can't, I can't go back in time. I can't prevent this from having happened to me. I can't, you know, undo all those doctor's appointments that I went to that made me feel this way. But I know that there are, you know, 
young patients out there right now who are sitting exhausted at their high school graduation that like, if I can just put the word out there about things, if I can give them a guidebook, if I can, you know, put a video out there that'll reach them. If I can be on a committee that speaks with the doctor in medical school right now, who's going to be treating them in just a few years, that makes me feel a little bit better. That makes me, that, that helps me get through the anxiety of going to my next doctor's appointment, knowing that, you know, maybe my doctors weren't educated. Maybe my doctors didn't fully understand what kind of impact their words had from, you know, exam room to exam room. But, you know, for the next generation, there's something there that I can do. And, um, and I have to think about that just specifically because working in rare disease and, um, I worked for global genes, which is the international rare disease nonprofit. And I worked for them for five years. Um, and, I was their managing editor and part of my job was sitting there and kind of just like listening to stories of different rare disease patients and, um, and writing, writing them up for the blog. It was also sitting in on calls for the national Institute of health, their rare, rare and undiagnosed disease program. It was really an incredible job to have at the time that I had it in the stage that I was in for my chronic illness, um, because I had just been diagnosed and with my rare disease. And I was learning so much about the rare disease community. And particularly, I was learning about clinical trials and research studies and what different rare disease patients go through and why they go through it. Um, A lot of them knowing that what they're doing today, the, the studies that they participate in, the clinical trials that they're involved in, will not save them. It will have no effect on their disease during their lifetime. But the next generation... They get, they're going to get that. Um, and I think that's just an incredible thing to walk with as you're walking through health, um, to know that like, if I can't help myself, I can make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. And as I'm living it, I can write the map for the people that are coming behind me. Um, and that's kind of, that's something that has been so profound in beating depression for me and, you know, not letting my medical PTSD get the best of me. Um, and I, I just feel like, you know, there's, again, there's just, there's not a lot that I can do to erase what's been done in my life, but there's a lot that I can do for the community as a whole that can be better. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me more about your career. I know that you're a, an author and uh, you mentioned this organization you used to work with. Tell me what you're doing now. So originally my, my career started, um, in public relations. That's what I, uh, started as. And so I actually had a boutique PR firm when I was like very young, like right out of college. And, um, and so I loved marketing. I loved PR and I loved writing. And when I got diagnosed, I was like, how can I transition, transition, the kind of work that I do into helping patients. And that's how I ended up at Global Genes. Like I said, I worked there for five years and that was incredible. And from there, I started freelancing, consulting, doing marketing and PR for different pharmaceutical companies and different health technology companies. And I was also writing a blog. And I wrote this blog throughout like all of my 20s. And it was just like a day-to-day like what am I doing today? Like, how am I dealing with my disease today? It was a little bit of like advice and tips, but 
it was a lot of just like get to know me and what living with a rare disease in your 20s is like. And I talked really openly and really candidly about like being in the hospital and trying new medications and like getting one weird diagnosis after another, like that didn't seem to fit. And the reason that I had started writing the blog was because I had, you know, I had mentioned that I didn't have a lot of support from a lot of people in my family to the point where like a lot of them had just cut me out of their lives. And I felt awful about that. I felt like they don't, they don't even know me. Like they don't know my personality. They just know that like, they think that I'm faking an illness and it's very real. And I kind of want them to just like, see what's actually happening, but I don't want to force that upon them. So I was writing this blog kind of for like extended members of my family, just like relatives that were not in my nuclear family who I just wanted them to see me and to see a bit of what I was actually going through in hopes that they might understand and reconnect with me. And that's not what happened. (laughs) (laughs) But the blog did reach a lot of people. A lot of people started following the blog. Um, There was a bunch of strangers on the internet that I didn't know. And then there was um, people from like my high school days and my college days, like old teachers, my neighbors, like just random people locally that um, had heard about it. And um, and so I was really encouraged. I think when you, when you know, you're actually speaking to an audience, like you get more encouraged to write. So I wrote a lot and I started getting a lot of opportunities. This was well before, I mean, Instagram was there, but it was not what it is today. And Facebook was there, but it was not what it is today. So yeah. Um, <laughs> so eventually I got contacted by uh, literary agents and publishers saying, you know, if your if your blog has this much of a reach, would you be interested in writing a book? Wow! And that was awesome for me because I had always wanted to write a book. Didn't think it would be on this, but <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. And so I ended up writing a book. And in 2018, it was published by New Harbinger. And this was a book that it's a little bit of a memoir, but overall it is a self-help book. It is a guidebook. It is a roadmap for young adults living with chronic illness. And it talks about just everything from like getting through high school, like setting up your, um, your disability plan in high school, moving out of the house for the first time, um, and just dealing with all the awkward social issues that come with just transitioning into adulthood with a chronic disease and a chronic invisible disease. So, um, so after I published the book, I continued my work in advocacy and I like sat on the board of three different nonprofit organizations. I got like really involved in the community of advocates and that's rare undiagnosed chronic illness. Um, And there are so many people doing so many interesting things. Like there are these great nonprofits, there are these health techs um, and research companies. And I've made so many interesting like connections over the years. Like I ended up working for a few different uh, health tech companies and different like genetic research companies. And just to rewind a little bit in my diagnostic odyssey, I had the incredible fortune to be a part of a clinical trial with Baylor University where they did a trigenome sequencing on me, which is where they take blood from my mother, blood from my father, and blood from me, and do a full DNA sequencing. 
And they do that so that they can try and find the gene that's causing all of your problems. Now, this was like well over 10 years ago. And so when they ran that test, they um, they hoped they would find you know something related to all the issues that I had, um, but they did not. But they did find uh, something called a VUS, which is a variant of unknown significance. Mm. And I learned a lot more about this when I like started working with all these different companies and um, research groups. But um, variants of unknown significance are are fairly common. It's just like a gene that is weird, but they don't know exactly what it refers to in your body or like what it does. And so they, they basically told me like, this could be important. It could be absolutely nothing, but keep this raw data from your genetic sequencing and just keep finding places to run it uh, every couple of years, because they're always discovering new genes and what they do. Like they just finished mapping the human genome like two weeks ago. Um, So there's, there's always new stuff to be discovered. And I think, you know, just in doing the advocacy work and, in doing that at the same time that I was trying to figure out my own diagnosis, it really opened my eyes again, like this continuing theme to the idea that like, wow, not only are like doctors, not gods, but here we have literally like pulled apart the human genome and we still don't know what's up. Like we're still trying to figure it out. So I think that's brought me a lot of clarity in my career. Like with my patient journey. Um, and it's also brought me a lot of hope that there's a lot of good things to come, but we don't, we don't even have to go into gaslighting ourselves because it's not just that our doctors don't know and that the tests don't know. It's like, we're so far still from figuring everything out that like, we can't look at ourselves as having caused things or, or punish ourselves for not understanding it because there's so much that we don't understand. And that's not our fault. It's not even science's fault. Like we're just working on it. Yeah. Where would someone go if you have a mystery illness and you want someone to run a research study on you? <laughs> like, like, yeah. how, do you have that knowledge? Yes, actually I do. So that's something I learned at Global Genes is what do you do if you're like undiagnosed? And there are a couple of avenues. So it depends on um, how old you are. Um, and what kind of symptoms you're having. So there's a couple of programs. The National Institute of Health has um, their undiagnosed diseases program, which is very hard to get into. They only take a couple of patients per year. Um, And I actually, when I was working at Global Genes, like my first year there, I was on a conference call where they were like answering questions about the undiagnosed disease program that year. And I was on the call with, I mean, people who were dying, literally dying to get into this program, including a mother whose child um, had some sort of like Jan Barre situation where he was slowly becoming paralyzed to the point where he couldn't breathe Hmm. and begging to get into this program. So it is highly, highly competitive. Um, So the first thing you need is a doctor locally who's going to be willing to write up your case. So do all the initial blood work, paperwork, um, pull all your results together, uh, and then write a letter to the NIH and submit your case. So that's one way of getting into a program like that. Now, there are a lot of other um, ways to get genetic sequencing done. And again, genetic sequencing is great. It does not always produce the results that we think it will, but it is possible to go out there and do it. There are research studies happening all the time. So if you just go on um, the clinical studies site for the government, I, I don't remember the link for it right now, but if you literally just Google like clinical trials, 
Um, you can go on there and sometimes they're just running like whole genome sequencing programs and you can enter that like I did and get into a study like the one that I did at Baylor University. Um, and they'll do all of that for you for free. And then there are companies uh, like one that I worked for um, that was called Face to Gene, where if you have a rare disease that is associated with any type of facial dysmorphology. So if you have um, any facial features that like if you were born with a cleft lip or you have or cleft palate or you have um, any sort of distinctive facial features that might seem abnormal to your physician. And that's a lot of things that you probably wouldn't even think about. It's the shape of your eyebrows, the width of your nose, um, the slant of your eyes. Like there are so many things that they could like tie with symptoms to a rare disease. Um, so this company that I worked for face to gene, they would literally take, you, you would go to a geneticist locally, wherever you could find a geneticist. Um, and they would take a picture of your face write in all the phenotypes, so all the symptoms associated with what you're experiencing, and the system, the software, would give them back an analysis and tell your geneticist what things they should most likely test for based on what your face looks like and what types of symptoms that you're experiencing. Wow. Really extraordinary technology. And this was a couple of years ago. So like, I'm seeing health tech companies come out every day with new ways of doing things like new, even social networks where they're like, put in your symptoms, put in your age, you know, put in all this information and we're going to group you with a bunch of people who are similar to you or who have the same kind of like health experience. And together you guys can probably find stuff. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of like genetic research and, and everything that's happening in that field, everything from, you know, entertainment DNA, which is like 23 and me where like, you know, it tells you whether or not you probably would or wouldn't like cilantro and connects you with like <laughs> long lost relatives um, to whole genome sequencing where they're looking for the one tiny gene out of millions that are, you know, that could possibly be causing crazy symptoms. So wow. it's really cool. Yeah. Super cool. So what's next for you on your health journey? You've, you mentioned, we, we haven't even gotten into this yet, but you did mention you have these uh, comorbidities, POTS, gastroparesis, and this adhesion uh, disease. Um, mm -hmm. Is is this something you're continuing to explore? What is going on with this adhesion disease? Are you still trying to piece together that there might be something more happening in your body that you haven't discovered yet? I think a part of me is like not quite as interested in continuing the diagnostic odyssey. Like I almost feel like we've gotten to a point where you know, I have part of the answer and I have part of a treatment, which means that like 50% of me is like feeling great. Um, and then there's the part of me that uh, is slowly being strangled to death internally by adhesions. And that's not so great. <laughs> um, but but I, I don't know that there is an answer to that. I'm going to keep, you know, working with different companies. I have my my whole genome as raw data. So I can send that out to any company or any lab in the world. I've actually sent it out to like a company in Germany and they ran it. Um, I've sent it out to a couple places. So I think I'm always going to be open to exploring that, but there's also a part of me that's like, I kind of, I kind of know at this point that I probably just need to find really good strategies to live with what's happening. Um, and with the adhesion disorders, 
I'm having abdominal surgery about once every two years, Um, about once every two years, something is strangled. Like it started with, I had the whole intestines that they had to like pull apart um, on that first surgery, but then the adhesions grew like a vine and they went up and they wrapped around my appendix and burst my appendix. And then it did the same thing to my gallbladder. And then uh, in 2000, 20 in February, um, it wrapped around my fallopian tube, uh, my left fallopian tube and we saved the tube, but, um, but it's aggressive. And so, and there's no other way to treat it that we know of besides surgery. And we don't even know when I need surgery until something has already been destroyed. Um, I don't really get, I, I would say that I'm, um, in constant abdominal pain. Like there is no break from it. Like I've had so many surgeries that, uh, it's just, I'm going to be in chronic abdominal pain, um, for which I'm in pain management and that's been its own journey. Um, but I know that I'll probably have to have a lot more surgeries throughout my life. And it's just a battle of like, what organs am I going to be able to keep and what organs am I not? And I have weirdly come to some sort of peace with that, which is strange. Yeah. How, how do you get to that place? Because there's no place else to go. (laughs) There's no place else to go. There's nothing else I can do about it. I, you know, I have been uh, all over. I've, you know, I've been through some pretty extraordinary clinics. I've seen great doctors. I've had my tissue samples sent to labs all over the world, had my genetic sequencing done. And, um, and I think the answer right now is that I am too far ahead of science to be explained. Um, and, uh, and someday somebody will figure it out and they will never have to go through what I, what I went through the next girl that this happens to. So. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, chronic illness often puts you in a position where you either accept it and learn to live with it, or you are upset and fighting yourself constantly. And it's like one or the other, it feels like oftentimes. Yeah. It's, you have to like pull yourself out of it to look at it. And I think about my life and like, you could think about it in one context and it could be a very, very sad story. Like it could just be a very sad story of a girl who's in pain all the time and was always sick and wasn't diagnosed on time. How tragic, how awful I'm incredibly successful. I am with a man who loves me. Like I now live in this beautiful state. I had this wonderful dog. Like I'm having a good time. Like, yes, I'm in pain a lot and I have a lot of surgeries, but like I I've had a good life and I'm continuing to have a good life despite this wasn't always that way. Um, But I think I've just, I've lived through so much at this point that like, there's a lot of good that came out of it. And, um, and one other thing I didn't even mention was like my mom, right she went through all of this alongside of me. She has watched me be sick for years and, um, and she's pulled every possible move to make life easier for me. And my mom is uh, a TV producer. When she, uh, when I was in high school, she, she uh, got a job at a studio working on the show, designing spaces. (laughs) And uh, she's a producer for lifetime 
um, helped with all these TV shows. But when I started to get really, really sick in high school, she was like, oh, you know, like I got to spend all my time researching and trying to figure out what your disease is. Like, I've got to figure this out. Like she was so extreme in, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to get you to the right people. And like, we're going to do this. And like, after working at global genes too, like, and the two of us just like exchanging stories, um, she decided that she was going to create a TV show herself and created the show behind the mystery rare and genetic, which is a show that's been running on lifetime for the last 10 years. Wow. And it does segments on every possible rare disease you've never heard of. And she produces all the segments. She works with all the pharmaceutical companies to produce this like educational television. She's helped thousands of undiagnosed patients get diagnosed. Um, she saved lives with this show. It's really incredible. I'm so proud of her. Uh, and she's she, she and her partner, uh, her business partner, Molly Major, the two of them like co-created the show together. And I've been on it a couple of times and um, it's really just extraordinary. It's, it's such great work that she does in the community. Um, and yeah, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And also like through your struggle, you got your mom diagnosed. Yeah. Which is so amazing. I mean, that's something I've thought about, you know, like no one in my family has anything similar to me, but um, my mom does have chronic pain issues. And I've always wondered, you know, if I were to finally get a diagnosis, is it something that could help my family members? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's always great to think about too, is like, um, and it wasn't just that like she got her diagnosis once I got my diagnosis, but it just kind of like opened up for like everyone else who was around us to like really think about the symptoms that they were having and that it was okay A, to talk about it, um, not just like quietly, but like with everyone um, and to go to their doctor and ask more questions. Like, I think it's just promoted a lot of, good conversations. And we constantly find ourselves surrounded by people who have uh, undiagnosed diseases, rare diseases. My mom and I like talk all the time. We're like, we could walk in a shopping mall and just like spot 10 people with rare diseases. <laughs> um, and we always just find ourselves getting emails and direct messages just from people who are on that journey. And we love that. Like anything we can do to like help and point people in the right direction. Like we want to do it. Like that's, that's why we're here. Yeah. Well, that brings me to my last question. If you were to address the next generation of people with chronic illness, uh, someone undiagnosed, someone who's fighting for care, fighting to be seen and heard by their doctors, what advice would you give that person? Don't back down. Keep going. Doctors are not God. Next. Um, <laughs> just, uh, just know that you are your own best advocate. And if you keep fighting for it, you will eventually get to a better place. Um, don't be discouraged and know that, uh, it's okay to go to therapy and deal with it. It's encouraged to go to therapy and not not because you are crazy and not because you are causing your own symptoms, but because the stress and anxiety of living with the chronic illness diagnosed or un undiagnosed is in incredibly impactful. It, it will touch you in ways that you would never think about, but, um, but you should give yourself as much support as you possibly can because it, 
it's going to feel at times like you are the only person who will talk nicely to yourself. So you really have to learn how to do that as early as you possibly can, because somebody has to be there for you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And it might as well be yourself. You're the only person who's always going to be there for yourself if you Absolutely. can learn how to be, which mm -hmm. is really tough when you're taught to doubt yourself by doctors. You yeah. Ben. Alana, you've done an incredible job today. I'm so glad that I reached out to ask if you could come on the show because you are just a font of information. You've <laughs> been living this your whole life and you've been working, you know, towards making this better for the next uh, generation of people with chronic illness for a long time. And, you know, I'm relatively new to to doing this type of work. I just hit my year anniversary. We're recording this on the day of the year anniversary of this podcast. Oh, no. Thank you. Um, yeah. And I'm just learning how, learning like what a big hole there is. You, you talked about like, there's so many, you know, we're all screaming into the abyss, but there's so many different abysses. What's the plural <laughs> of abyss? So many different abysses to scream into. And we don't know which one is worth screaming into. And it sounds like you've done a lot of that work. So please tell us where we can find you and direct us towards anything, social media or projects or anything like that online that would be helpful to the chronic illness community. Yes, thank you. Um, definitely follow me on TikTok. I'm working so hard on the TikTok circuit. So I'm at Alana, which is I-L-A-N-A -A underscore Jacqueline. Um, I'm there on Instagram. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me at alanajacqueline.com. And you can find me at bookstores across the US, UK, and Canada. Uh, my book is Surviving and Thriving with an Invisible Chronic Illness. And if you need a guidebook on how to deal with this life, this is, this is the book for you. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm thrilled to include your story in the podcast. And I learned a ton today. You know, there's just so many options out there and it feels so hopeless and isolating to be chronically ill with no answers. But every single person I talk to has new things to provide, new avenues to explore. Um, and it just, I'm continually surprised at all the things I've never heard of as someone who is 37 years old and undiagnosed. There's always something else to try. You keep fighting until you get there. That's my that's my goal. That's what I'm going to keep doing. And talking to people like you really helps to keep me going. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. This was great. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, and Alexandria Henderson. And our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.